I met Ben Stewart when he was a student at Texas A&M University. He was, uh, my wife was actually on Campus Crusade for Christ staff, and Ben was a student leader with Campus Crusade. He was emceeing their weekly meetings, and when he graduated, he went down to Houston, and he was a youth pastor at um, Faithbridge Church, and so I asked Ben when he got down there, I said, you know, once you get down there and you get a chance to preach in big church, would you send me a copy? So he sent me a cassette. So that, kind of, that lets you know how, how long Ben's been in the game. He sent me a cassette, and uh, he, it was interesting. I was asking him earlier if he remembered. I remembered getting that cassette because uh, I'm pretty sure he, he talked about grace. Not the church, but God's grace, right? And uh, I, I was listening to it, and I thought, I'd heard him MC meeting, weekly meetings before for Crusade, and I heard him speak, and I thought, wow. I, I did not know he had that in him. I, he, this, this guy is really powerful communicator, and uh, he really knows how to listen to the Lord and then speak from his heart. I was really, uh, I was really moved when he spoke. And while Ben was down there, of course, his life improved immeasurably. He met Donna, got married to Donna, and uh, moved up in the world significantly. They are uh, partners in ministry. I don't know if you've ever been around them together, but they're partners in ministry. And obviously, they have some, some real obvious uh, upfront gifts, speaking, leading worship, all that kind of thing. But what I, I love about both of them is that they're genuine. They are, uh, in our little thing here, we talk about leadership in terms of integrity. It means being the same publicly as you are privately, the same inside and outside, what people see and what they don't see. And they're both people of integrity. They're, they're genuine. They really care about others. And they really, really long to grow in their relationship with Christ. They have a deep passion personally to grow. So I hope that you came tonight expecting God to speak to you. That's what you need tonight, for God to speak to you. So Ben, would you come? Bless us from the word. Thanks, Brian. That's so nice. I was just going to make fun of you a little bit, but now I feel bad doing it. Uh, Holy. Kidding. Uh, howdy. Howdy. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't stress. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. But uh, while you're turning, I just want to say um, it's an honor to be here. And uh, I'm very grateful for Grace Bible Church. Uh, there's been a lot of intersections in my life in, in this church. Uh, when Donna and I moved to town uh, to be a part of Breakaway, uh, members of the church helped us move in. They were at our house right away uh, to kind of help us get settled. Uh, the ladies' ministry here has been an incredible encouragement to my wife, which is always a blessing uh, as a husband. And uh, I've got connections all over here. I, I did know Brian when I was a student, back when Brian was rocking the stash. And... Uh, <laughs> Just, yeah, I sold you out. And, uh, and uh, just trying to get a date with Tristy. That's, that's when I met those guys. And uh, uh, anyway, there's been connections all over the place. Buck and uh, my pastor did a radio show together. And uh, several of the guys were friends with my sister and are now good friends of mine. So very grateful. Uh, and last thing I'll say about this church, too, is uh, the spiritual life, you know, is, is event and process. There's the process of God working things in your life as you walk with him and with one another. Uh, but every now and again, there's events uh, where God just turns something in your heart and says, that will always be different now. And uh, I remember for me as a freshman in college, sitting across the street uh, at this church and listening to a sermon uh, about the grace of God in the book of Romans, and uh, I wept uncontrollably. And I had never really listened to a sermon, uh, much less cried at one. It was very confusing. I'm like, what is happening? Uh, but... Um, 
God was doing something in my heart in that moment, and He was whispering to me, that's, that's what you're built to do. To take in the words of God and as simply as you can explain them to people. Because that's what changes lives, and that's what I'm doing inside of you right now. So I'm very grateful for this place, and, uh, and I'm glad to be here with you. So uh, with that said, let me read to you uh, one of my favorite texts to teach, which might confuse you once I read it uh, as to why, but I think it'll make sense as we go along. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9. This is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. But Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for these moments around your word. Thanks for just the clarity we got as we sang, God. And and I think it is good for leaders to hear that. We can't earn your smile. We shouldn't try. And God, we should be encouraged to surrender and say we trust you. You are the Lord. We are the servants. You carry us along. We worship as we watch you move in us and through us. And so, God, thanks for that alignment through worship. And now, God, I pray you would take your words and just sink them deep into our hearts. Impress us with your truth as we look at it together. And I pray we wouldn't just grab biblical knowledge or ideas or trivia, but I pray it would sink deep and change the way we think about ourselves and think about you and think about what it is we're about to do this semester. And I just thank you for Brian's reminder, because it's true, this is bigger than me and and, and anybody here, and so we're asking you to meet with us. And I want to ask you, if you're up for it, just take a minute and ask him. Say, God, please teach me something over the next few minutes. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me, that God would speak through me and it would make sense. Well, Father, we love you, and we trust you. Use this time, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about how to die. Uh, When I moved to this town to come back for Breakaway, one of the first meetings I had was with a life insurance salesman. Uh, And he came to my office and took me to get coffee and for an hour uh, explained to me that all the ways I might perish, even as we sat there. Uh, And we covered them all. I mean, gored by a mad cow, carried off by a twister. Uh, I mean, just all the things that can happen. And uh, I remember, I mean, just a weekend being here, I was like, I'm getting the message from the financial community of this town. And the message was this. It's never too early to start thinking about your own death. And the weird thing is, that's a perspective we get from our Bible. And it's a perspective we get from the great men and women of the faith, too. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, said in his resolutions that he wrote, most of them when he was in his 20s, he said, resolved to think often of my death and of the common circumstances that surround death. Which you think, that sounds morbid and weird. But he's not alone. Moses did much the same thing in Psalm 90. He said of us, he says, in the morning we're like grass, which sprouts anew, 
But towards the evening, it fades and withers away. Moses stopped to contemplate the fact that we're not here long. But then Moses tells us why that's a beneficial thing and not just creepy. He prays and says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. See, wisdom is the ability to navigate life well. And he says, help us keep in our minds this reality that we're not going to live long. Help us burn into our minds that we will die. Why? So that it will affect the way we live. It'll give us wisdom in the decisions we make in the few years that we have on this earth. And so what I want to talk about tonight is how to die. And I don't want to talk about how to die like all the ways you can, like the fact that around 12 people a year die from coconuts falling on them, which is a fact. Um, I beg God every day not to let me go that way. I just think that'd be sad. You know, it's hard to be serious if, you know, God used him until that coconut. You know, uh, I don't know. But um, I want to talk about how we want to live. That when the day we die comes, people can say, this is what was true of their life. These were the things in their life that I could say those were magnificent and godly and true and beautiful. I want to look at how do you want your life to play out before you go out. Uh, And in my personal experience, the best thing to do is look at somebody else who's gone before you. That gives us a lens through which to judge and see our own life. Uh, I read a book this summer called Crazy for the Storm. It was a secular book written by a guy that when he was 11 years old uh, was in a plane that crashed into a mountain, uh, killing everyone on board except himself. Uh, And he was over 8,000 feet high in the middle of a blizzard. And at 11 years old, this young man walked down a mountain in a blizzard and made it out alive. And the book's about how he did it, how he pulled it off. And as you look in the book, what happened to this kid, the way he made it down this mountain alive in the midst of this crisis, was that he had a very clear image in his mind of his father. Because, see, his father was an adventurer. His father was kind of crazy. His father was crazy for the storm. That's where he got the name. But his father was an adventurer who had brains. And so he thought about his dad and the way he lived his life and the way he navigated difficulties successfully. And he thought about the perspectives his dad had and the practices that his dad implemented. And as he put that image in his life of his father's life lived well right up until the end, he began to implement those practices and perspectives into his own life right there on the mountain. And he made it down successfully and wrote a book and is currently making a lot of money because they're selling it at Starbucks, right? (laughs) So what I want to do is I want to look at the life of Paul. And we're looking at Paul right at the end of his life. As far as we know, these are the last words that Paul wrote before he's gone. And I want to see some things, some perspectives and practices that were a part of Paul's life, part of a life lived well, the best kind of life possible, this apostle who changed the world. And I want to see what was in his life and so we can implement it into our own so that we can navigate well in the few days that God's given us on this earth, right? So we've got eight points, which you're like, it's a sermon. Shouldn't there be three? Not at a conference. There's eight. So hang on. Um, And here we go. To begin, verse 9 says this. It says, make every effort to come to me soon. Uh, Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's writing to young Timothy, his beloved disciple. To the Corinthians, Paul said of Timothy, he's my faithful son. To the Philippians, he said, I have no one else like him. Christianity brings with it deep relationships. And Paul loved young Timothy. Uh, And so here at the end of his life, when he sees the end coming, he wants his best with him. And there's a lot of speculation. Why does Paul want Timothy with him? Some people think he has more instructions he wanted to give Timothy. Some people think he just wanted young Timothy to watch him die well so Timothy could see someone going all the way for their faith and it could encourage him. Uh, I personally think Paul just knew the end of his days was here. He says, the time of my departure has come. And I think as he saw his final days approaching, he said, I want my beloved son with me. I want Timothy here. Uh, The immediate cause we're given for this writing is in verse 10. He says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. 
Demas had been mentioned before by Paul in Colossians, and in the letter of Philemon, he had called him a fellow worker. Demas is really, he's Paul's Judas. Uh, And really, in this section, he's the antithesis of Paul. Because Paul, we're going to see, when Christianity gets tough, he hangs in there. Demas, when it gets tough, he bails. He says, I'm done. And Paul's assessment of it was he bailed because he loved this present world. Literally, he agaped this present world. Uh, And so he said, I'm out. I'm going to Thessalonica. Uh, I remember when I was a college student, I had the opportunity to travel with the director of Breakaway at the time, Greg Mott, and I learned more from riding around in my Buick with him uh, through Texas going to camps uh, than I had from hundreds of sermons, just watching him live his life well under God. Uh, But I'll never forget one time, we were cruising along in the middle of nowhere once, and we were discussing this text, and I remember he looked at me and he said, Ben, the name Demas means popular. He says, when it comes down to it, all the time I ask myself, when it really comes down to it, what am I going to chase? What means more to me? Am I going to chase the cause of Christ, or do I just want to be liked? And when those come into competition, which wins? For Demas, he made his choice, and he's gone. Uh, But Paul's around. And we see the contrast in Paul's life, really, in this verse, and then following through verse 12. Listen to what he says. He says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark, bring him with you. He's useful for service. Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. What's he doing here? Anybody see what's happening? He's at the end of his life here. He realizes he's about to die. He's sitting in a prison cell, which I've been in there. It's just a little hole in the ground. It's dark. And yet he writes to Timothy and he says, hey, Crescens is going to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Bring Mark. He's useful. Tychicus is in Ephesus. Paul is at the end of his life here. And he is orchestrating ministry on like five fronts. I asked my team leaders last year when we taught this book together. I said, what does Paul look like here? And they said, he looks like a coach calling plays. And I said, he does. He's just like, Titus, I want you to go on a button hook down to Dalmatia. Okay, Crescens, I want you to take a long out, all right, to Galatia. I want Mark and Timothy in the background for the option. Let's do this, people. Let's see some hustle, all right? (laughs) I mean, he's writing a book at the end of his life, and he's not sitting here crying like, I'm a victim. He's sitting here going, okay, let's do this, folks, all right? He's fired up about seeing the kingdom go forth. And so what's the first point about things we need in our life, stuff we want to be said about us when we die? The first thing is this, Paul never retires, and we shouldn't either. I want death to be my finish line. Uh, For me, going to seminary, one of the most encouraging things about going to DTS was the fact that they had two faculty over 90 years old. And these men would teach, and I'm not kidding, one of them would get up there and he would not know what day it was. He'd get very confused. He was completely incapable of coordinating his pants with his shirt, right? And by the end of the time I had him as, as a professor, he had lost an eye, all right? But he would stand up there, not in front of us, uh, but, uh, but he would stand up there with a scar on his head, a big eye patch on, crazy clothes, going, is it Wednesday? But then when it came time to open the Bible, he stood day in and day out in front of a classroom full of 20-year-olds and just delivered to them the words of God. And I'll be honest with you, there was more than one time when the class period was up and he was done and nobody moved. Because we were just floored, not just by what he was teaching, but by the fact that we were watching a man be faithful all the way through the end. Unbelievable. I sat in a class once with a lady. Actually, I went in a class with her. I visited her with her. She was a student. She was in her 60s. And so I asked her, why are you going to seminary? And then I asked her, I just assumed, I said, are you just doing this for personal enrichment? Was it kind of a dream? You know, I'm just thinking on the back end of your life, your little bucket list or something. And uh, I remember she looked at me and she just goes, no, I want to be a missionary. I said, oh. She said, yeah, my kids are growing up. I'm looking at the back half of my life. I want to go somewhere where they don't know Christ, and I want to go make his name known until the day I die. And I was like, well, carry on then. All right. <laughs> but I've got to tell you something. That's a biblical idea. 
When Joshua led the people into the promised land, do you remember there's only two old people there? Everyone else was young. The old people were just Joshua and Caleb. And what did Caleb say? There was one pocket of the toughest resistance in the promised land. Caleb stepped up and said, I'm 85, but my eyes have not dimmed. If that's the toughest part, I want it. All right? And he said, send me in there, Joshua. I want this. And that's the right perspective. Priests in the Old Testament, you would serve from the time you were 20 to the time you were 50. And you had to retire. Mandatory retirement at 50. And yet at 50, you were done serving in the temple, but you weren't done. From your age of 50 to the day you died, you were meant to train the young generation. uh, And I quote, to keep an obligation that you continue to minister. You may retire from your job. You may quit working for a paycheck, but we never quit proclaiming the gospel until the day God determines we're done on this earth. Amen? Uh, Second point is this. Paul is surrounded by young men. Did you notice he is surrounded by young men? And I want that too. I want to be a part of imparting the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. And can I dispel a rumor to the older people in here? There's a rumor around that younger people don't want age, and it's not true. Uh, We talked about this at at Parents Weekend last year, uh, that man, when this generation of college students was growing up, uh, they did a prequel to Star Wars, and young Obi-Wan was trained up by the actor Liam Neeson, right? Then they did a movie about Batman, and you watch the young Batman get trained to be Batman, and he was trained by Liam Neeson. (laughs) And then you saw Orlando Bloom become a warrior crusader in the movie The Kingdom, and he learned his crusading skills from Liam Neeson. (laughs) And I asked him, I said, what's the deal with Liam Neeson? I said, Hollywood knows. Hollywood knows that young people know. They know it. They want a Yoda. They want someone above them who can teach them the things of God, right? My best leader when I was a youth pastor was a woman above 50. And she worked with the junior high kids. And they loved her because they knew she cared. And I'll tell you what, as a college minister, and these guys here would probably amend me too, there are far more young people asking for mentors than there are older people asking to guide young people. And that's a shame. It's a shame. It's an obligation. 2 Timothy 2, Paul told Timothy, you take what I've taught you and entrust it to reliable men. You do this. A similar command is given to women in Titus to train up the younger women. General Patton, World War II, said it this way. Always have a man trained and ready to take over your job in case you're killed. The test of your ability is whether you could be killed and nothing would be lost. You keep that one in mind, all right? Write that on your Bible, okay? If I'm killed, are we okay here? Right. Uh, and the truth is, I want to challenge you. Those of you who are getting older, as you picture the back end of your life and make plans, do those plans include training up young people? Taking young women with you as you go to the store, as you run errands, just so they can sit with you in here. Taking young men with you as you run errands as well. Young people, don't forget about the young people beneath you. We get to college and we're acutely aware of our need for leaders, but we forget about the generation behind us, that there's high school kids in this town, there's elementary school kids in these churches. Are you passing on what you've learned to the generation behind you? You should always have some young people in tow, right? Now, there may be some years of transition as you're a freshman. You're maybe not going to get that in place, but you should be looking as life goes on. When you're asked the question, where are your men? Where are your women? You should be able to say they're right here. These are the people I'm guiding with me. And our prayer should be a Psalm 71. Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to those who are to come. I want 20-year-old pallbearers at my funeral who are praising God for the deposit I've put in their life. Uh, The third thing you see in Paul's life is Paul has buddies. Did you notice it says, only Luke is with me. Paul has buddies, and I want close friends too. 
Luke was a Proverbs 18 friend. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that was Luke. Uh, All through the book of Acts, which is chronicling much of it, Paul's life, you see the narrative switch from they to we as you see Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, intersect with Paul's life. And you see Luke traveled with him and just kind of chronicled Paul's life to deliver it to us. And now at the end of his life, when everyone's gone, Luke is still there. Luke, the physician, is probably keeping Paul's beat-up body alive at this point, right? And we need friends like that. You need good buddies who will keep you alive. I'll be honest with you. When I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for five years, and I watched five men I knew personally fall out of ministry because of sexual failure. I've been here five years, and I've watched five men I knew personally fall out of ministry because of sexual failure. I've seen so many people fall out of ministry, it makes me ill. A number of speaking uh, obligations I had this summer were because a guy who's been doing it for 20 years, meanwhile, had two women that didn't know about each other. It happens all the time. And you want to know how it happens? They don't start out and go, I'm going to go into ministry for the money and then use it on women and drugs. All right? That's never how it works. Right? They start sincere. They start with an honest desire to serve God, and they have natural talent and abilities, which people recognize and then lift up. And you get lifted up into leadership, and suddenly you're guiding people. But meanwhile, in some dark corners in your life, you have some things you can't control. But these people are looking to you for attention and guidance. You can't share it with them. And if you share it with them, they might kick you out. And so you better not share it with anybody. You keep that stuff hidden. You keep it in a dark corner. You let it fester behind closed doors and you let it grow and it'll overwhelm your life and it'll ruin you. And it happens all the time. People let themselves get built up on a pyramid and they're not humble enough to get honest and say, you know what? These people might build me up as I lead them, but I need to go to these people. And I tell young people this all the time. You need to find some people who love you but are not impressed with you. They don't look at your leadership skills and go, wow. I mean, I have friends in my life that, man, they go, wow, you spoke in front of how many people? Don't care, because you're being a jerk right now for these three reasons. All right? I mean, I need those guys. I need people in my life who aren't impressed with me at all. But when I sit down with them, they expect me to be honest. And I have no closed doors in my life, no dark corners, no secrets. And you need that. You need to start to ask God now for some people in your life who know that all the lights are on. In AA, they say you are only as sick as your secrets. And some of you, I want to beg you, as you begin to grow in leadership, do not become too arrogant to air those out. Now, you find a trusted place to do it. Men, you go to a godly, mature man. Ladies, you go to a godly, mature woman. But you get a friend around you, people who can support you and hold you up to keep you accountable when you're in need and then to just help you. For me, when I was a youth pastor, just the way I was wired, I worked 90 hours a week. Okay, I mean, I just slept up there. I never wanted to stop. And for me, all I knew how to do was study the Bible and talk about it, study the Bible and talk about it. And that was kind of how I worked. And I realized there were struggles in my life, some discouragements, depressions, that doing that kind of thing doesn't work. You can't solve all your problems by yourself sometimes. And I remember for the first time, for me, I was working with my students. And man, whenever I did event planning, it stressed me out. I would event plan, was helping these kids kind of be at this place. And I was trying to get them all out, make sure none of my kids died or escaped or were stolen. And finally, all the students got away. And I just wanted to go home. And uh, I remember one of my leaders, uh, I was looking around just for the last couple of kids. We were at this uh, event place together. And I look over and he's in the corner playing this video game. And I was like, bro, what are you doing? All the students are gone. He was like, jump in here. I think I can beat this. I'm like, I'm not going to jump in there. I'm a grown man. I said, all the kids are gone. It's over. And he's like, will you get in here? And I was like, well, okay. And so for the next hour, 
he and I played this ridiculous video game. And this guy forced me to not take myself too seriously. And I remember once a week I'd go to his house with him and his wife because they taught me how to laugh and have fun and enjoy life and smile and be normal. (laughs) I tell you, you meet a lot of guys in seminary. They just dive into books and they become weirdos. Okay? (laughs) Some of you, this isn't going to be shocking. Some of you, this is what's going to change your life. You need friends. Okay? You need friends to make you normal and to keep you safe and to keep you alive. Paul needed them. So do you. You want a buddy who will be there to the end. Billy Graham had Bev Shea. Rocky had Apollo. Frodo had Sam. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And you need a buddy. Next thing is, Paul is still learning. This is number four. We're doing pretty good. Uh, Number four, Paul is still learning, and I want to learn too. If you look in verse 13, it says, When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Parchments were more uh, valuable, uh, and uh, so typically you would put more valued documents on parchments. We don't know what this was, uh, but a good guess would be their books Paul wanted to learn from, maybe even scriptures, his Old Testament. We don't know, but the reality is I think we can extract from this. Here in prison and his impending death, Paul wants to keep learning. He says, I want my Bible in front of me. I want a book in front of me. I can read and ingest. The interesting thing is we have a parallel to this in church history in William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale, who translated the New Testament into English back when it was not popular to do so, got imprisoned for it near Brussels. And before his execution in 1536, he wrote a letter to the governor asking for warmer clothes, a woolen shirt, in his Hebrew Bible, grammar, and dictionary. Now, if you were in prison about to die, would it occur to you, man, I just need some Hebrew? (laughs) Maybe it should. I'm just saying. These godly men at the end of their lives say, I'm going to keep learning. I'm never going to stop drawing near to the words of God and letting them impact me. Uh, One of the most fascinating things that happened to me when I was a young minister was I wanted to find a place to steal away a lake house to sneak off to to study and prep for the semester. And I asked a couple because I knew they had a lake house if I could borrow it. And they said, yeah, we're on our way out there for vacation. And I'm like, no, I, don't, I just wanted to go like, without you. Is that cool? Uh, and they were like, come on. I was like, oh, man. So suddenly I was on a vacation with this couple in their 70s. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out uh, it was awesome uh, because they would leave during the day and go you know, look at crafts and such. And, uh, and I would study. And they would come back, and we would spend the evenings, they would be reading out on the porch, I'd be reading at the dining room table, and then we would all eat dinner together, and then we would sit on the back porch in rocking chairs and watch the sun go down. And as we watched the sun go down, we would talk about what we all learned that day. And I sat with this dear 70-year-old woman, Sammy, and her husband, uh, Jack, and they would talk about what God was teaching them in the Word of God as they read Oswald Chambers in bed uh, together, and as they studied their Bibles in the morning. And they would tell me about the things they were learning and about the things they couldn't wait to pass on, Sammy to her women's ministry and Jack to men incarcerated in Huntsville. Uh, and I remember looking at that and saying, I want to be like that. I want to be in my 70s and keep learning, keep drawing near. And so I want to encourage you. Sometimes your discipleship time, your quiet time, your devotional life may get dull. Ask some people how to make it exciting. Find books that make it fun. Uh, but man, you keep learning, keep growing. There's more there. Number five is that Paul had enemies. Paul had enemies. And I want enemies too. Which sounds weird, but uh, I want a certain clientele of people to hate me for all the right reasons. And that's what Paul had. 
Verse 14 said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on your guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now notice what Alexander hated. It wasn't just that Paul was obnoxious. It wasn't a personality conflict. He understood what Paul was teaching. He assimilated Paul's message. And he hated the message, and therefore he hated Paul. Do you see that? And so for me, I don't want to be belligerent. I don't want to be needlessly offensive. I don't want to have what a mentor of mine called spiritual BO, right? Where you're just super spiritual and obnoxious to people, all right? The gospel is offensive enough. You don't need to be offensive personally. But are you as knit together with the gospel that people who hate it hate you? Jesus, 11 times in the gospels, it says that a group of people wanted to kill him, all right? You don't mock, spit on, beat, and crucify Mr. Rogers, all right? (laughs) And 11 out of the 12 disciples died a violent death. John Wycliffe, this is one of my favorite stories, Wycliffe, another Bible translator, a guy who before the Reformation was teaching salvation by grace through faith in a day when it was not popular to do so. He was hated so much for preaching that gospel, they wanted to kill him. He died before they could get to him, so they dug up his bones, burned him, and threw him in the river. And I tell you, that's how you want to go, all right? (laughs) Yeah, people know your name, and they know what you stand for, all right, for better or for worse. And so you don't need to be needlessly offensive. But Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I had a friend in college. She was, no kidding, the sweetest girl I had ever met on the planet. Uh, We would go play racquetball, a group of us together, and I didn't like playing against her for two reasons. One is she could hit the ball so hard. You know that like zinging sound it'll make when you just hammer it? She would do it every time, all right? And what would happen is she would hit it so hard, I would just kind of watch it go by. And she would ace me. And then the second reason I hated playing her is because she would always go, sorry. (laughs) And I would go, don't, don't. And I found the only way to beat her was to hit the ball straight at her, which I felt terrible about later, but... Anyway. I mean, the sweetest girl, literally, that I had ever met. I mean, she was so kind, so gentle, so loving. She graduated, got a great job, and she was out there. And I'll tell you what, she was kind to her uh, people in her office. She would ask them how their day was. She was always looking to encourage people, but they knew she loved the Lord, and she got made fun of. She got mocked. And I remember visiting with her once and her husband and watching her cry because she said, I just don't understand why they're mean to me. I'm trying so hard to be nice. The scent of the gospel is so much on you that you're offensive before you say a word. And that's the kind of person you want to be. Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. Does everybody like you? Then do they know what you believe? Uh, Billy Graham said, You can test the measure of a man by the metal of his enemies. Uh, I want to be hated for the right reasons. But notice Paul's response. Paul doesn't say, So Timothy, put a cap in him. All right, take him down. All right? That's not what he says. He says, Alexander did me much harm. The Lord will repay him. Do you notice he doesn't tell Timothy to get even? He just says, hey, he was mean to me. He hurt me. Timothy, look out for him. But you know what? Don't do anything. God will take care of him. And you see, Paul does not try to seek vengeance. He understands that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so number six is Paul dies forgiving. He dies with forgiveness in his heart, even for his enemies. And not just for the non-believer. If you look at verse 16, it says, At my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Uh, Some background here. This is widely believed to be Paul's second imprisonment in 
in Rome. His first imprisonment, we believe, went much easier in Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts ends with this imprisonment, and it seems like it's a bit easier. And when he writes to the Philippians, it looks like he's going to get out. And so the way we think it played out is he got out, lived life, but then there was a fire in Rome that the emperor Nero blamed on Christians. And then we believe Paul was rearrested. That's when 2 Timothy comes. And you see he's arrested when suddenly it's a lot tougher. It's a lot more difficult. And he writes this letter and says, Timothy, I'm not going to make it. And he doesn't. And yet at this time, he had what was called his first defense. That is where pretty much you're brought forth and the uh, charges against you are read. And in that moment, you're brought before the officials to him in Rome. It was before the officials of the entire Roman Empire. And he is brought before them and his charges are read. And the way it worked was you could have a corner, people who would show up to support you. People who love you, who know you, would be essentially character witnesses. And they would come forward and say, hey, these charges aren't true, or this is the person's character, I vouch for them. And so here Paul is, a minister of the gospel, has spread the message of Jesus throughout the Mediterranean, is put in prison in these days when it's tough. And he steps forward at his first defense, and he looks in his corner, and nobody came. Were there Christians in Rome? You bet there were. They're going to be mentioned in the shout-out section later. And yet, when it comes time to support Paul, they're too scared to come. But Paul's not mad at them either. He says, may it not be counted against them. And you see, Paul, at the end of his life, he's not bitter. He's like Jesus on the cross, forgiving his enemies. He's like Stephen, praying for the forgiveness of those who are currently hitting him with rocks till he dies, right? And that's what a true saint of God does. You forgive when you're treated unjustly, right? You don't hold grudges. And Paul does this to the end of his life, and I want to die forgiving. And I got to tell you something, as a leader, you're going to have to grab this. Because people will be mean to you. You will do your best to prepare a Bible study lesson and you will teach it and you will hear them murmur and make fun of you later. And you'll just want to go, I have broken my life off to help you. I'm going to beat you. There are going to be people who are going to say untrue things about you, who are going to be mean to you, going to be harsh to you. People are going to be unfair. You're going to be treated unjustly. And guess what? You got to forgive them. You got to forgive them. You got to turn it loose. You don't want to be, as a believer, someone who harbors resentment. Okay? That wasn't Christ like. God will deal with them. I forgive them. Right? Uh, Jesus, in the book of John, when he's described by John, when John tries to think of a succinct way to describe Jesus, he always says he was filled with grace and truth. And so that point earlier where I said people need to know what you stand for, some of you need to get a lot stronger on the truth part, that you tell people the truth of the gospel of God uh, has a son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin. You have to come to him because you're broken. You need to be good at declaring the truth, and you need to get strong. Others of you, you're good at that. You can declare the truth, but you don't have much on the grace side. You're not nice. Right? And man, you've got to balance out on that end. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. Paul told uh, Timothy, he said, the goal of our instruction is love. So if you're here and becoming a great Bible teacher, but you're not loving people, you're doing it wrong. You've somehow broken the process, right? We need to love people, even our enemies, right? Uh, Paul, you know, Mark uh, is mentioned here. Bring Mark with me. He's useful for service. Mark abandoned Paul early in his ministry, and yet Paul is able to forgive him and draw him back in. And I'll be honest with you, I run into guys all the time that are mean, that are cruel in the name of Jesus. And they always say, well, I have the gift of prophecy. I'm like, I have a prophetic gift. That's kind of how they say it. It makes it sound spiritual, right? Uh, No, it's just a prophetic gift. That's why I'm so mean. I'm like, no, you're just mean. Uh, (laughs) Jeremiah spoke harshly, but his head was a fountain of water because he wept so much over the sin of his people. 
So the day you start crying over the sin that's breaking your people's hearts is the day you can be hard on them, okay? So if you're out there just being mean and declaring the truth to people, but you're not weeping for them, you're not a prophet. You're just a jerk. You need to beg God to give you a heart that loves people. And I got to tell you, as a leader, I'll tell you something that's been helpful for me as I lead Breakaway is, man, I draw near the truth of God and try to take it into me. And then I always take a moment to go out and and steal away and try to look at the crowd I'm dealing with, my leaders, people I'm speaking to, a small group, it doesn't matter. But I try to look at them and I pray, God, do in my heart what you did in Jesus. It says, when he looked out in the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were sheep without a shepherd. Compassion was splagnitsima. It means his guts moved. It's kind of a gross word. It means lower intestines, moving around. But the idea was that Jesus had an emotional response when he saw his people, and his response was compassion. He cared. And so for me as a leader, I beg God to do that in me. I want to care about my people. I want them to know I love them. And if you're going to lead people, they need to know you care. They want that. You want that from your leaders. And so you've got to forgive. You've got to be kind, full of grace and truth. See that? So Paul was left alone. No one was there at his first defense. But look at how it played out in verse 17. He says, but the Lord stood with me and the Lord strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. For me, that's one of the most emotional scenes I can imagine. Paul, at the end of his life, having ministered and shared the gospel around the world, sharing it with more people than anyone who had lived to that day, starting churches all over the place, shows up at Rome, they're slaughtering Christians and he is standing before the kings. He is standing before the emperor. And as he steps up, he looks to see, have any of these people whose lives I've blessed standing next to me? And he looks and it's empty. And you can almost hear his heart sink. I'm alone here and it's not looking good. And yet he recalls that God had told him, I'm going to use you to declare my truth before kings. And so he looked up and said, okay, I think this is that moment. And so Paul in that moment, even standing alone, says, but the Lord is with me. And then he says, the Lord strengthened me. And then he says, I proclaimed it. That Paul stood there, and in the midst of a growing tide of mediocrity, Paul stood up and proclaimed the truth. That's the next one. That amidst a growing tide of mediocrity, Paul preached when it got hard. And I want to be like that. And you're going to need to be like that as a leader. Many times as a leader, you're going to have to stand up and say the hard thing when no one else will. You're going to have to cut the wake when it would be easier to shrink back. Jim Elliott said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another upon facing Christ in me. That's the kind of person you want to be. That you are so present in declaring the truth that it will draw some to you and repel others. But no matter what happens, you know, I'm going to stand here. Here I stand. I remember for me, right when I graduated from college, my plan when I graduated college was to wander the earth. All right? Uh, And I thought I'd go to Europe and just kick around. Uh, I got a phone call from a church, asked me, have you ever st- thought about being a youth minister? I said, no. Uh, they said, you want to think about it? And I was like, I guess. And so I became a youth minister. Uh, and so it killed my plans to wander the earth. I was going to go walk around Europe, all right, for a couple months, all right? And I was like, I guess I'm not going to go. I jumped straight into youth ministry, working with students, never got to go. But then I got a call from my uncle, who was a stockbroker. And he said, hey, man, in my company, the top 10% of stockbrokers every year get treated to an all-expense-paid vacation to Europe. My wife does not like to fly. Would you like to go? And I said, yes. (laughs) So I went to him. And the beautiful thing was I went to him. And we showed up. And we were in a five-star hotel. All right? Uh, Bruce Springsteen and the Spice Girls were staying there along with us back when that was maybe a bigger deal than it is now. (laughs) But um, 
I remember showing up there, and the lady who was checking us in, she was like, Mr. Stewart? I'm like, that's right. And she just hands me this envelope filled with cash. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. All right. <laughs> and I remember, no kidding, we were riding around the car. They're driving us around this town car. And I see all the kids my age, like, wearing all these, like, matted on them sticky clothes, like, sleeping on a bench under a statue. And I was just like, roll the windows up, James. All right. And uh, we just kind of drove past them to our brunch, you know. But uh, life was good. But I remember showing up there, and uh, they had this big reception the first night down in this ballroom, and I was excited about it, and I walked down there, and, uh, and uh, they, everyone was just kind of walking around, cocktails, drinks, that sort of thing, and I remember walking around, and uh, all these people came up to me, and everyone said the same thing. They would walk up, and they'd say, so you're awful young to be a stockbroker, and I, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm a, you know, et cetera, I'm a, his uh, nephew, and they're like, oh, great, and then every single one of them said, oh, so what do you do? And I remember when the first lady came up to me, we were sitting there over the celery, and she said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a youth pastor. I tell students about Christ. And she went. (laughs) Didn't say another word. And I had never had that happen. I was just like, oh. Somebody else came up later. You're awful young. (laughs) What do you do for a living? I'm a youth pastor. I tell students about Christ. They did it too. Did not say a word. Uh, later reflection, I think, you know, they were there to party and they were like, I don't even want to deal with you. Because they didn't just say, oh, inter-. they didn't even fake it. They just left. And I got to tell you, I was not in a place where I could take a lot of hits like that socially. And I remember by the end of that night, I felt beaten up because no one really wanted to visit with me. And I remember the last people that came up came to me, hey, you look young. <laughs> uh, what do you do? And I said, I work with young people. Wow, that's great, man. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well, then let them lead the way. You know, and they start telling me all these things about how wonderful I am for loving on the kids. And I was like, yeah, go me. Big pat on the back. And they left, and I just felt sick about it. Because to get their attention, I had to sell out Jesus. And I did. The sad thing was, I was reading a book at the time by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died for his faith, and the book was called The Cost of Discipleship, all right? So I go back to my room, and I'm like, ow, stop it. You know, I'm just like... But I remember sitting there and just going, God, I don't ever want to do that again. And so I wasn't a jerk about it, but I was unapologetically Christian. And by the end of the week, I was unapologetically alone. I remember sitting at this dinner party and literally, not even my uncle, Lord love him, was sitting next to me. Uh, There were just open seats, all right? Uh, And we were watching these plays occur and we were eating dinner. And uh, I remember all of a sudden sitting there alone last day and I'm just ready to go home. And this woman sits down next to me, just jumps into the chair next to me and she goes, (gasps) Your uncle told me what you do. I said, really? And she goes, who do you tell people you work for? Are you like, um, God? Like, who writes your checks? Are you like, um, God? And I go, yeah, that's what I say. And she's like, really? And I went, no. That's totally weird. And she was just like, I think what you do is so cool. You know, I've been meeting with my spiritual counselor, and he's been talking to me about this mountain, and there's all these different roads, and as long as you're sincere, you walk up these mountains, and everyone can get there, and it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it sincerely, and all this kind of stuff. And the whole time she's saying that, I'm just going, oh, God. Because <laughs> here's a person being nice to me, right? But I don't agree with her on that concept about spiritual things. And I was just like, God, I don't know what to do. And I remember she finally got to a moment where she stopped, and I said, i got to be honest with you. I completely disagree with you. And she just goes, ah. <laughs> which is weird. I don't know if you've ever said that to someone in a conversation. It'll shut it down, all right? And, uh, and I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm, I'm not saying that like being mean or anything. I said, I said here's where I'm coming from. I, I said, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. 
And if I read it, I can't walk away from that and go, and it doesn't matter what you believe. The Bible's pretty clear that there's one God, and there's one mediator, one bridge between God and man, and it's this man, Jesus Christ. And I've got to tell you something. My allegiance is totally with that guy. I'm going with him. Because he lived a perfect life, died, rose, beat death, did it for me. He loves me, and I love him, and I'm his. And I remember she just went, what was that again? And so I talked her through the gospel again. And she was like, what about, and she started asking me questions. Cool thing was, she asked like three or four times. And I remember at one point, she asked me this question, and I just said, it's all about Jesus Christ. And right when I said that, there was an orchestra playing, and they all hit like a note together, and they threw the lights on. I was like, it's all about Jesus Christ. Ah, And like all the lights hit off. And she just went, yeah. And she goes, do you know what song that was? I said, no. And she goes, it's from Jesus Christ Superstar. And I was like, repent. The kingdom is at hand. You know, I was like, it's clearly a sign, you know. But I remember we got done talking and we went back to the hotel and she said, I want to know more about this. And I, she looked at me and she goes, somebody left a Bible in my room. And I was like, what are the odds? You know, She's like, his name is Gideon. And she was like, I'm going to go grab it. I want you to show me what you're talking about. And she did that to me. I don't know if you've ever done in that moment where she just hands you a blank Bible. And I'm like, in mine, it's highlighted. Um, you don't have a very good concordance. Um, John 3.16 is really all we need. Really, it's just that one, pretty much. But uh, I'll tell you, I got to a moment. And you know what? I just got to a place where I said, you know what, God? I want to be willing to do that. I want to be honest. And I got to tell you, a leader, a leader cuts the wake. You take the hits. You get some friends around you who will encourage you. But there will come a moment where you're going to stand alone. And you're going to decide, do I want to be liked and popular and accepted? Or do I want to be honest and true and take whatever comes? Paul says, I'm going to take what comes. And we need to do the same. And he stood up among a growing tide of mediocrity and said, that's not okay. And we got to do the same. And he says, the Lord rescued me. He didn't die that day. And then he ends in verse 18 and says, And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Last point is Paul sees the hand of God in all things and gives him glory in all things. He says, God stood with me. God strengthened me. God rescued me. God will rescue me. God will take me home. To God be the glory. That's how he signs off. And I want to encourage you as you're a minister, you need to see that. You need to feel desperate that you can't accomplish anything of eternal value. You can't. And Paul, at the end of this book, does not boast. He just sits and says, I'm little. I'm small. I'm like a sheep. And yet my God gave me strength. My God let me speak. My God took care of me. My God will take care of me. His God is good. And so he ends by saying, to God alone be the glory. Bach used to sign off all his music, sola gloria Deo, to God alone be the glory. And that's how you want to sign off your life. He's the one who took care of me. Jim Elliott, the great missionary, just said, we're a bunch of nobodies telling everybody about somebody who'll save anybody. And that's who we are. That's how we see ourselves. As a leader, we're not big, strong leader. We're little people. We're small. We can't accomplish eternal things. And yet God in his mercy takes little broken people and lets us speak to kings, lets us move mountains, Let's us change lives. Now, I know some of you are going, well, Ben, uh, maybe I'm not leading in ministry. This is all ministry stuff. I, I want to encourage you. Uh, and wherever you are, there is no more important message than the message of Jesus Christ. There's no more important mission than the mission of Jesus Christ. There is no greater 
point to chase after in the horizon than the glory of God. And I want to encourage you, whatever field you're in, engineer, teacher, accountant, I want you to see the greatest thing in life is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul says at the end of his life, all that matters is the glory of God. And that has been manifest in my life, and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be gone. For me, Donna and I got to go to to Rome together. And it took me forever, but I found the Ostian way. It's not where Paul's tomb is or Paul's prison is. It's where we believe he was killed. Nobody really goes out there because it's a hassle to get there. And I remember sitting in a little grove of trees and saying, it was probably around here that he died. And I read this passage and I saw the end and said, man, at the very end, he just pointed up and says, he's taking care of me and he will take me home. To him be the glory. And that's how I want to end my life. And I pray that's how you'll live yours and that's how you'll go out. Letting God be glorified in you for his glory, for their good. And I promise you, that's the best way you can do it. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thanks for every person gathered here. Some God are tremendous leaders. They have tons of skills and gifts. And what they needed tonight was here, that they need humility. That they can't change the hearts of men and women alone. It is the glory of God that moves in them. And I pray that would sink deep and they could confess it to you tonight. Others, God, are tremendously gifted and talented in ministry. They've been thrust into leadership positions but they've been too proud to confess to somebody the darkness in their hearts. And Lord, I pray they could walk out and say, you know what, I'm going to lead, but I'm going to go to somebody, my leader at my church, a trusted pastor, a good friend, and I'm going to say, here are some things that might crater me, and I will not be a tragic hero. Here are the things in the dark. I'm going to tell you so they won't own me. And I pray some God will be leaders for 20, 30, 40, 50 years because they made a decision tonight to be honest. I pray others, God, would not feel that they've arrived in the world of knowledge, but as much as they've learned, they've realized there's so much more. I pray others would realize that their goal with their small group or who they're leading is not just to download all their wisdom, but they need to ask themselves, do I really love these sheep? Do I really care about them? And they need to beg you, God, give me a love for the people I guide. But Lord, I pray for all of us, wherever we are, you would do your work in our heart. You would help shape us into godly leaders. And I pray you would be glorified in each one of us all semester. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.